Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Tonight's episode talks about what's going on in the town, going scene by scene through the Twin Peaks scenes in this uh, episode, part five, season three. The drug plot, we see a couple examples of that in this episode, and again, sort of scattered, so I don't know to what extent it's a coherent plot, but it's definitely a repeating motif. Becky and Steven snort something. Is it coke? Is it that mysterious drug? Is it the Chinese designer drug that Bobby talks about? It's not entirely clear, but uh, whatever it is, they seem to be enjoying it. And then, of course, when Richard gives money to Chad in the roadhouse, it does seem like that's something to do with the drug trade. It tells us Chad is a corrupt cop. He's got his hands in that business, and that might also explain why Bobby couldn't uh, figure out how the drugs were getting into town because, you know, he had all the surveillance set up through the woods and everything like that. The Jacoby plot goes in an interesting new direction. We find out why he was spray painting those shovels gold. It turns out he runs a podcast as Dr. Amp, you know, some sort of YouTube channel where he rants about corporations, corrupt politicians, and ecological disaster. He's very defiant, but there's no concrete solutions offered. It's more of like a self-help venue. You know, this isn't like a systematic critique and here's the solution, but more of like, this is shit, so let's dig yourself out of the shit. Buy this shovel for $29.99 or whatever it is. And he shows a commercial where he's standing in, I guess, a big pile of manure and literally shoving him, shoveling himself out with that golden shovel. It's pretty funny. We get to see Nadine watching him. Jerry is out in the woods watching him. This is a very Frostian element. I would imagine that Frost was really the force behind Dr. Amp, both because of the social commentary and also just the flowery sort of language he uses, it just the, the verbal style, it feels very Frostian. That said, Lynch was on Alex Jones at one point, so it is possible he had some input or perspective there. People have wondered about that. But this character, the Jacoby as Dr. Amp, he's much more of like a left hippie populist type guy rather than this sort of right-wing conspiracy theorist that Alex Jones is. It reminds me of some of these small newspapers or publications like where I am, there's one called the New Hampshire Gazette, which I think is just run, run by this one person for like 30 or 40 years where they've written every article for like every month or something like that. It's not even an alternative press where, you know, there's a small crew that works on this independently. It's, it's a one-man operation of sort of somebody yelling at the wind, you know, a justified crank, so to speak. The Jerry plot continues as we see him smoking in the woods watching Dr. Amp. We have the Cooper investigation, as always, but it's very minor in this episode. We only see Hawk and Andy looking at some files for the Laura Palmer case, and there's no Indians, as uh, Andy points out. <laughs> he says, there's no Indians here anywhere, and that's basically it. It's just a one-gag scene. This, I have a feeling, may have been designed to take place before Frank Truman comes back to the office. Uh, that's when most of the other scenes like this take place, but maybe Lynch moved it here just so he'd have something in this episode that dealt with that. I'm not sure, but that's a suspicion of mine. The Roadhouse plot, if you can call it a plot, it's more of like a collection of fragments, almost like an anthology of short stories. This week it's uh, Trouble, the band Trouble, which is uh, David Lynch's son on the guitar, I believe playing uh, as these teenagers are watching Richard. These teenage girls are, are observing Richard Horn, this kind of bad boy figure who's sitting in a booth at the roadhouse, mocking a bartender, and then uh, giving some money to somebody, and then choking Charlotte, one of the girls, when she comes over to get a cigarette from him, basically assaults her, and is, you know, whispering, yelling, actually, obscenities in her ear. Nobody's interfering except the other girls who are upset by this, and he, 
sneers at them and calls them little smoking babies. I think right from the beginning of this scene, the music creates a different energy than we've seen in the Roadhouse uh, so far in this uh, series, really as a whole, actually. This is a much more aggressive sound there, and that sets the tone right away. He makes this iconic impression right away. He seems like a young Frank Booth kind of smoking there with this intensity around him, and then he's terrifying as he just lashes out at somebody and seems like he has complete control over the situation and there's nothing anybody can do. The big breakthrough this episode is Becky. We saw a little hint of her in uh, episode uh, part two, when Shelley was talking about her at the Roadhouse. But now we meet Stephen, her husband. He's insulted in an interview with good old Mike Nelson, who we remember from the earlier show, Snake, to Bobby's uh, bopper, I think it is. And it's really fun to see him back again. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's uh, owner of a car dealership now, and he's giving an interview to this guy and just insulting him, telling him how sloppy he is, how he'd never hire him, his resume's a mess. And uh, Stephen later describes this as great fucking feedback, too. <laughs> to uh, his wife when they're in the car together uh, at the diner. Becky goes to the diner to deliver bread. She works at a bakery, and she has a delivery to make to, you know, where her mom works. But she also gets money from Shelly. And Norma's watching them and goes up to Shelly after Becky leaves and says, you know, this is the third time you've given her uh, money in two weeks. It's going to get a lot harder later if you don't help her now. And they both kind of nod to each other like they know they know this score. They've been down this route themselves with their previous husbands. Stephen tells Becky in the car that he's looking for work and, you know, things are going to go okay. And he shows her a whole vial of uh, powder that he's already snorted. We're not sure if it's sparkle or cocaine or what. We'll talk about that in the drug section because that's kind of its own plot. But this elates Becky, who's been kind of down, a little bit nonplussed in Stephen's presence. And once she takes the drug and he flirts with her a little and they drive away, they're grinning and she looks up at the sky and there's this beautiful overhead shot of the light changing across her face and the colors. And it's just such a great sequence. When I watched this, that blew me away right away as it did many other fans and this feeling of uh, magic and a very joyous kind of magic that you don't see quite as much in Lynch's work. It reminds me a lot of Mulholland Drive, but even there, there's a sort of a darkness and ominousness to it in the soundstage sequence when they're singing the 50s songs and everything, whereas here it just feels more like a moment, a, a beautiful moment of euphoria. It is a lot of fun to see Mike Nelson again. Uh, he's different and yet not so different. He's arrogant, but in a new mode. You know, Before we saw him as this jock, this jerk, this young punk who was rude to his elders and everything, and now it's like he's the elder scolding the, the younger guy, but at the same time it's a consistent through line of somebody who's full of themselves and dismissive of others it's just his social role has changed because he was a teenager and now he's a middle-aged man and there's just you know different roles for him to play in this community sort of doing the same thing i guess his brief respite with nadine where he seemed to become kind of a nicer guy uh, that that may have been a, a brief blip in the road of of mike so it's a lot of fun i'm glad they brought him back it's a real treat for fans i think and i'm sure a lot of people watching didn't even register that that's who it was but for those who notice it's it really adds something nice to the scene we take a look at the frank's family life plot he talks to harry in a hospital we're seeing now you know when lucy said harry is sick he's not just out with the flu there's something more serious going on and we get a sense of that as Frank talks to him. And then Doris, Frank's wife, comes in and yells at him. And at the time, I think there was a lot of commotion about what, what exactly is this scene supposed to convey? Is this just like a, oh, look at cranky women? Or some people were taking her side saying, no, she's right. He is being too authoritative or something like that. 
And I think I looked at it and I just thought, okay, he's sort of suffering her, her or enduring her insults quietly. And it's kind of a comic scene, like the, the stuff Lynch likes to do where he has, you know, these the the women sort of haranguing somebody and the uh, the guy just takes it in or something. Another plot line we deal with here is the double R. We don't get too many details about it yet. We don't exactly know what's going on, but Norma is sitting at a table full of bills and she's looking over them with her spectacles and she's clearly kind of overwhelmed with some sort of aspect of her business and she's not bustling about the counter like she did in the old series. So we know something's different there and that it's not necessarily a positive thing. That's how it's presented right off the bat. It's cool to be casually right back in the double R, like no frills about it, just here we are, business as usual. But the fact that Norma is watching the scene between Shelley and Becky from a distance, I think subtly underscores our own distance. The fact that we've been away from this location for so long, we don't really know what's going on or the dynamics there. It kind of underscores that in a nice way. And I also just think in general, when you have a scene that you present through a character's eyes, it often makes it more powerful and, and stronger depending on the circumstances. It's not appropriate for every situation, obviously, but it, it's a touch that usually works wonders to kind of invest you in the scene in a different way. There's one storyline that disappears in part five, meaning it's been gone for at least four episodes, and that is the uh, story of Ben and Beverly. We just got a brief moment with them. Jerry kind of uh, teased Ben a little bit about her and he defended her. And so it was an interesting setup of a character, but we haven't seen that since part one. So at this point, that's the only season three story that we can say has really fully dropped off. And we'll see when or if it comes back again. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow's episode will cover the spirit world, what's going on, the scenes that take place there, and also what's going on in the terms of the larger mythology at this point. See you then.